All right, turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. This is, again, the longest chapter in the whole Bible, 176 verses. We've been in this psalm for a little while already, and by the end of the message today, we will have reached the halfway point of this psalm. Uh, if you didn't know what this psalm was about, I'm going to ask you, hey, what would you guess is the theme of the longest chapter in the Bible? The thing that God devoted the most space to in any one chapter. What would you guess? I would have some guesses. Uh, most of them would be wrong, I think. I would guess things like maybe God's love or God's grace and his mercy or the salvation that God brings to us in Jesus Christ. But this whole psalm is about God's law. The psalmist is celebrating the goodness and the wisdom and the beauty of God's law. He speaks of the hope that he has because of God's law. He speaks of his determination to obey God's law. And over all of this, he makes the statement that has kind of been the, the title or the theme that we've seen here, that he loves God's law. Oh, how I love your law. This morning, we are up to verses 81 through 88. So follow along as I read this morning, beginning in verse 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Well, let's jump right in with verse 81 and look closer at this one. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Here the psalmist is, again, in a situation of affliction of some kind. You'll find that this is the case throughout most of these verses this morning. But he isn't hopeless. He hopes in God's word. And because of God's word, because of the promises God has given, he longs for God's salvation. Now, this is how we are supposed to handle affliction and difficulty. Remember God's promises. And that remembering will give us hope. And that allows us then to be able to handle the difficult circumstances, the difficult experiences in a godly way. Now, when we talk about affliction, what are we talking about? What kinds of difficulties? Well, it could be hard circumstances regarding persecution. Like that seems to be the case for the psalmist. He's experiencing the opposition of people who are opposed to him because of his faith. He has enemies who hate him because he follows and obeys God. Maybe the affliction that you experience has to do with finances or relationships or with your job or something else like that. Whatever it is, this psalm is relevant to all of us 
in the things that we struggle with. Why is it that God sometimes has us go through affliction? I mean, He's God. If He wanted it to stop, He could make it stop. He can deliver us at any point. Why does He wait? Thomas Manton gives us several reasons, maybe, that that God might wait to deliver us from affliction. Number one, sometimes God waits in order to test our faith. Faith, in a sense, is like a muscle. It grows stronger when it's strained and stretched and exercised. Number two, sometimes God waits in order to drive us to prayer. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 18 about a persistent widow who kept asking a judge for justice until he finally did what she asked. And Luke tells us that Jesus told this story to teach his disciples that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Third, sometimes God waits in order to show us our weakness so that we'll rely on him. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians that he and Timothy felt that they had received the sentence of death, but it turned out, Paul says, that this was to make them rely not on themselves, but on God who raises the dead. Because if God can do that, certainly he can deliver you from whatever affliction it is that you're experiencing. And fourth, sometimes, Manton notes, God waits so that when he does bring relief, it makes his glory that much more obvious and noticed. The author of Hebrews encourages us, when we find ourselves in these difficult situations, to consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Do you see what the author of Hebrews is saying? If the Lord of the universe can humble himself to become a man and to be willing to be subjected to mistreatment by the very men that he himself had created, then you and I can trust him when we face it. Verse 82 then says, My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? Some translations say, my eyes fail for your word. The idea here is that the psalmist has been looking with such intensity for God to fulfill his promise that his eyes are worn out and exhausted. Like Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 38, My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Spurgeon explains it this way. He says, The psalmist's eyes gave out with eagerly gazing for the kind appearance of the Lord, while his heart in weariness cried out for speedy comfort. To read the word till the eyes can no longer see is but a small thing compared with watching for the fulfillment of the promise till the inner eyes of expectancy begin to grow dim with hope deferred. In Psalm 130, the psalmist compares this to a watchman waiting on a city wall. 
through the night when it's difficult to see and you have to look really hard and strain your eyes looking out for a a messenger to arrive. And he writes this, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. We can have a tendency to be impatient, to not wait in hope, but instead to wait with complaining, with doubting. Calvin challenges us, although he delays his aid and holds it as it were in suspense, yet we must be fully persuaded that he has not forgotten his office, which is to comfort us. There's a story in the Old Testament that illustrates something we should remember here. The king of Syria had come at one point with his army and surrounded the city of Dothan and he wanted to capture Elisha the prophet because Elisha was helping the king of Israel and the the king of Syria wanted to get Elisha out of the way so that he wouldn't have this help anymore. When Elisha's servant got up early that morning and saw that the city was surrounded by this great army and horses and chariots, he said to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? But Elisha said to him, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And of course, Elisha's servant is looking around going, I'm not seeing it. So Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when Elisha prayed, the Syrian army was struck with blindness and was easily captured and defeated. When we're in the midst of a hopeless, seemingly hopeless or difficult situation, we need to look with the eyes of faith. We should look to the promises of God's word, looking even until our eyes grow weary. But we should look with eyes of faith because our God is faithful. He keeps his promises and whether we see it or not, his angels are everywhere and his ability to deliver us from whatever the circumstances is, is never in doubt. In verse 83, then the psalmist writes, For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. The comparison here is that the psalmist is like a leather bag, one that would be used for a wineskin or a waterskin or something like that. But it's been hanging in the smoke above the fire, and that would dry out a leather skin and make it cracked and brittle and unable to hold the liquid that it's supposed to hold. The psalmist feels like that because of the afflictions that he's in the middle of. But in spite of that, he hasn't forgotten God's statutes. And when it says he hasn't forgotten them, not forgetting here has the idea of continuing to obey. Forgetting would be disregarding, disobeying. So the psalmist says that despite his difficult circumstances, despite the way that he feels, he continues to obey. The author of Hebrews gives Moses as an example of this kind of faith. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
That kind of faith is possible because of who God is. We know that he keeps his promises. We know that he's powerful. He's able to do what he says. And scripture teaches us that even in the middle of the affliction, his heart is for you. Listen to what is said by Jeremiah in Lamentations 3. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. God's heart is not in the pain we experience. His heart is in the good that he brings us through the pain. That's where God's heart is. Verse 84 says, How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? And you can hear in this a level of certainty that the psalmist has that the justice will be done someday. He wants it to happen sooner than later. But he knows that God is just. He knows that God will answer. How does he know that? From God's word, from God's promises. This reminds me of what we saw in the book of Revelation with the souls of the martyrs under the altar crying out for God to avenge their death. And in God's timing, it happened. As God's people, we have to trust God for his perfect timing. He knows when the right time to act is. He knows when it'll accomplish the greatest good in your life and the greatest glory for him. Even if we have perfect confidence in that, it's not wrong for us, though, to voice our desires to God like the psalmist does here. What the psalmist wants is not wrong. He's longing for justice, and God wants us to come to him with what is on our heart. Next, in verse 85, the psalmist says that the insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. And the picture here is that of hunting wild beasts. People would dig pits and cover them so that an animal wouldn't see it and it would fall in and be trapped. As an example of this, when the writers of Samuel and Chronicles are um, emphasizing the bravery of David's three mightiest men, one of them is named Benaiah. Here's what it says about Benaiah. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, great deeds, he struck down two heroes of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. So the lion had fallen into the pit, trapped by a hunter, maybe Benaiah himself, and Benaiah jumped in with it and killed it. But that gives you the idea of how the pits were used. And the psalmist here in verse 85 says he's like the animal that the wicked are digging pits to try to trap him. He's under assault by the insolent, the proud, those opposed to God. And Jesus experienced this too. In the Gospels, we read about the Pharisees and others plotting together to try to trap Jesus, to trick him, and eventually to bring about his murder. Don't miss what the psalmist says here too about the wicked. They do not live according to your law. That, of course, is the mark of the wicked. 
They don't live in obedience to God's law. So if we don't obey God's law, what are we? Wicked. Still applies today. The righteous are those who obey God's law, and the wicked are those who don't live according to God's law. Verse 86 then says, All your commandments are sure. They, they the, the opponents, persecute me with falsehood. Help me. The word sure here is firmness or stability, security. It's the idea of faithfulness or a, a moral soundness, truth. God's word is sure. It's unchanging. It's rock solid. The psalmist's enemies, on the other hand, let fly with accusations that are not grounded in truth. They are falsehood. They are lies. We live in a culture of lies. Lies about gender, lies about what love is, lies about wars and lies about people and deep fake videos and lies about politics and elections and lies about what makes a good citizen and lies about what's right and what's good. Where will you turn for truth? There's only one source for truth that is always right, always sure, always able to be counted on, and that's God's word. The psalmist knows this, so he turns for help to the God behind the word. Help me, God. And then he continues his thought about this oppression that he's experiencing from these enemies in the next verse, verse 87. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. So despite the severe oppression that the psalmist is experiencing, he does not walk away from God's law. He hasn't forsaken God's precepts. He continues to obey, to live by God's commandments. Notice that. The, the, uh, the actions of the wicked don't determine what the psalmist believes is right for him to do. It's God's law that is the standard by which he is operating. Now, oftentimes, that's not how we respond. We don't have that kind of faith. We experience difficulty and we think all is lost. We think we'll never make it through. We think God has abandoned us, and so we don't obey like the psalmist does. Instead, we try to do things our own way rather than God's way. And Calvin says that kind of attitude, this lack of faith, is like a man who would throw himself into his own grave before he's even dead. It's a woe-is-me attitude rather than a faithful walking with God. And part of the issue here is perspective. The psalmist has the right perspective on his troubles. Notice what he says. They have almost made an end of me on earth. Here's what Spurgeon notes about this. He says the psalmist perceives the limit of their power. They could, at the utmost, only consume him upon the earth. They could touch his earthly life and his earthly goods. Upon earth, they almost ate him up. But he had an eternal portion, which they could not even nibble at. It's like what Paul said when he was faced with prison. He didn't know for sure what was going to happen, but he thought God would deliver him so that he could continue to serve the churches. But here's how Paul reasoned in Philippians 1. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. 
but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. See, this is a man who has no personal, temporal, selfish agenda at work in his life. He's completely given over to what God wants. So no matter what happens, he simply trusts God and follows him. Calvin compares this kind of trust and obedience to the season of winter. Here's what he writes. He says, For as we see in winter the trees seem dead, as we perceive no sap, leaf, or anything else, yet there is life hidden in them. Even so it is with us. Though we are still and quiet while waiting for aid at the hands of God, we are sure that when winter is past, that is, the time of our afflictions, that God will give us life, which was, as it were, hidden before. And so we continue to walk faithfully, as the psalmist says, but I have not forsaken your precepts. And then finally, in verse 88, the psalmist says, In your steadfast love give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. The psalmist recognizes God as the source of life. When God gives us new spiritual life, we are enabled to keep his law. He gives us his spirit, and the spirit of God writes his law on our hearts. See, apart from that new life, we're spiritually dead, unable to obey. But in regeneration, God gives us life. And what's the motivating principle behind God giving us life? His steadfast love. His covenant love and faithfulness. If you're a child of God, then the God of the universe, the God whose law you have broken, has set his love on you in such a way as to give you life and enable you to keep his law. Not only that, he's taken the law's penalty on himself by coming to earth as a man, Jesus Christ, living obediently to the law, taking the law's penalty, though he didn't deserve it, taking it as our representative, paying the penalty for us in our place. That's the kind of love, steadfast love, that is behind this giving of life that the psalmist speaks of. And what's the right response that you and I should have to that kind of love? Keeping the testimonies of his mouth, obeying his law, walking in his word, out of gratitude for what he's done for us. Well, that brings us then to the halfway point of the psalm. There's so much to be said about God's law. And the psalmist speaks of experiences that every one of us can relate to. So, as we go through this, take these things to heart. Don't just hear this as some kind of academic exercise, just filling your brain with knowledge about God's law. No, let it shape you and guide you and direct you like the psalmist says. Now, as has been the case each week, we want to kind of broaden out now and see a little bit more about God's law from the rest of Scripture. And the principle that I want you to see this week is this. God's law is for our good. God's law is for our good. 
And I want to show you this by showing you how the law applies to someone who experiences a certain kind of affliction. The psalmist this morning has been talking about affliction. Here, it's not going to be the persecution of enemies. It's going to be financial affliction. And it might be brought on by circumstances beyond the person's control, but more likely this is brought on by unwise choices. It might be brought on by laziness or a host of other reasons. But I want you to see one particular solution that the law provides and how the law regulates that solution for the good of the individual and the other people around him who are affected by it. And this will probably be a little bit surprising in terms of the form that this solution takes because we're going to be talking about slavery or more precisely the nature of being a bond servant. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21. Now, as soon as I say the word slavery, we have an issue because of our own times and our own context. The slavery that we are most familiar with is that which has been in our nation's past, which was a race-based chattel slavery. That's not what's in view here, but I do want to say there are a number of people, if you go back historically and you look at slavery in the United States, there were a lot of slaveholders who did attempt, to some extent, to do justice according to God's word in the way that they treated their slaves. That was not the case for everyone. It's not the case to the extent that it should have been. But there is, if you go back and read the, the, the writings of a number of the slaveholders or the slaves themselves in our nation's past, there are a lot of biblical principles that were applied to some extent, for better or worse at times, in our nation's history. But it helps us to realize that the Bible is talking about in terms of slavery is different. It's not the same kind of thing. And we'll get into that a little bit more probably in future weeks as we talk about this. But what we find beginning in Exodus 21 is the law code or ordinances of Israel. In the previous chapter, chapter 20, you have the Ten Commandments, the basic moral law. Then in 21, 22, 23, we have the law code. And these are the basic rules built on the Ten Commandments. And then later we get into all of the judicial, like specific case laws that give examples of what the law looks like in more detail in particular circumstances. But this is the basic essence of the covenant that God has made with his people, the rules that he gives his people to live by. And the very first set of rules, right off the bat after the Ten Commandments, has to do with slavery. We're going to read Exodus 21, 1 through 6. These are the rules regarding male slaves. We'll save the other parts from verse 7 on for future weeks. Follow along as I read then Exodus 21, 1 through 6. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. 
Then his master shall bring him to God. He shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore through his ear with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. All right, so first of all, before we get into the heart of this, just one quick observation. Why do you think that all of the ordinances begin with slavery? Simple answer is, this is what the Israelites had just been redeemed out of. They had been slaves in in Egypt. And so this is part of their identity as a people. It has to do with their beginnings as a nation. What I want to do is to walk us through this text by asking five questions. And here they are. Number one, how does a man become a slave? Number two, what happens to a slave's property and family? Number three, why would a slave choose to stay in slavery? Number four, why does the slave who chooses to stay have this sign on his ear, the, the, the hole that's bored through his ear? And number five, what's the purpose and goal of slavery? And let's just briefly answer each of these questions. First of all, how does a man become a slave? Well, we see here that the master has bought the slave. Why would that happen? Well, there's two reasons a Hebrew male might become a slave. First, through committing a crime. And we've seen this in previous weeks. If a man committed a crime, he had to make restitution to the victim of the crime. But what if he didn't have the means, the resources, the money to make restitution? Well, at that point, the court would sentence him to serve the victim as a bond servant. He enters slavery to pay off the debt to the victim. But the one I want to focus on is the second reason this morning that a man might become a slave, and that's simply to deal with financial debt. Debt that's beyond his means to repay any other way. And you can see an explanation of this in Deuteronomy 15, if you were to turn there. God tells his people not to harden their hearts, but to meet the needs of their fellow men. But meeting those needs means that the person comes under the care and protection of a person who has the means to provide for them in exchange for them becoming a bondservant and working for them until they can recover their financial standing and pay off their debts. So in our psalm this morning, we saw God's heart in afflicting his people is for their good. Sometimes God uses financial difficulty as an affliction in the lives of his people in order to bring maturity. And God provided the means of becoming a bondservant as a way of both dealing with the financial difficulty and providing a secure and protected environment in which to develop that character. Second, what happens to a slave's property and family? Well, our text tells us that whatever the slave brings in to the time of service, he takes that with him when he leaves. The passage in Deuteronomy kind of goes a little further, and it tells the master, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. And the idea there is that just as God provided for the Israelites when he brought them out of the slavery of Egypt, so too the master here should help the freed slave get established in his freedom. So there's a bare minimum 
which is what he brings in, he takes that out with him. But then God also encourages the master to be generous with him and to help him get established in his freedom. So if he came into slavery with a wife, then the wife leaves with him. But on the other hand, if the master gave him a wife while he was a slave, then the wife and the children must stay with the master. Now, why is that? Doesn't that seem harsh? Well, first, let's be clear. They're still part of the same community. The former slave would be able to regularly visit his families, to spend time with them. You could almost kind of make the analogy of somebody who travels a lot for work or is in the military or something like that. But there are two reasons why the wife and children would stay with the master. First, this is what is fair and just for the master. The, the female slave who became the wife would have cost him money. And he's been feeding and clothing and caring for this woman and then for the children while they've been part of his household. So he has a very real financial investment here. It's only right that he be compensated fairly. And here then we see that God's law is structured for the good of the master in this case. And the freed slave, of course, would have the freedom, if he saved up the money, to buy the freedom of his wife and children. That would be a good thing. He could certainly do that if he saved up the money. But until that point, the master is treated fairly and justly by continuing to have the wife and children in his household. The second reason that she would have to stay with the master is for her protection and for the protection of the children. Why is this freed slave, why was he in slavery in the first place? Well, it was because of some level of financial irresponsibility. If it wasn't because of a crime. He had gotten into debt that he couldn't pay. So rather than having the wife and children go out and be subject to his poor choices, they stay under the protection and provision of the master until such point as this man demonstrates that he actually has matured. He saves up the money. He, he demonstrates that he has become financially responsible. And at that point, then, he has the freedom to buy their freedom and to establish a new household. Again, this is an example of God's laws being for the good of his people. In this case, for the wife and children. It's for their protection and provision. Now, third question, why would a slave choose to stay in slavery? Well, the text here says that he might choose to do that. And the reason that the slave gives is that he loves his master, his wife, and his children. Now, don't miss what that says. It's not just that he loves his wife and his children. He loves his master and his wife and his children. This man has come to find true freedom, a true opportunity to flourish by being part of the master's household. He's well taken care of. And so is his family. He has the opportunity to work along with the privilege of working for a master that he respects and loves. If the slave makes this decision, he has to say so publicly. He has to declare it. 
he's taken, now in our translation is that it says that he's taken before God. Literally, it's he's taken before the gods. And that's a term that's often used for the elders or the rulers of the village. And I think that's really what's in mind here. He's taken before the gods, the city elders, and he has to publicly state that he is choosing to stay permanently as part of this household. That makes it so that everyone will know that this is a free choice that he's making. He's not being coerced. He's not being kidnapped. He's not being kept against his will. And so again, we see God's law structured for the good, in this case, of the slave himself. Now, that leads us to the next question. Why does the slave who chooses to stay have this sign put on his ear? If the slave chooses to stay and to be part of the master's household, then he's taken to the doorpost of the master's house and a hole is put in his ear to mark him as a permanent slave. And the symbolism here is then that his ear is permanently open to the voice of his master. He's permanently marked as being in this position of obedient attention to the word of his master. Just like Israel was commanded, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that Moses spoke in your hearing. They were to learn them and be careful to do them. So too, this slave is supposed to listen and obey the voice of his master. In Isaiah 50, the servant of the Lord says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. So this servant has his ear opened, and that means he will obey the voice of his master. Another example, Jeremiah 6, where God is speaking to Jerusalem, giving them a warning of coming judgment because of their disobedience. God kind of says, but it's pointless because they're not going to listen. Here's how God describes it. He says, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. So God describes their ears as uncircumcised, uncut. It's the same language that Stephen uses in Acts 7 to describe the unbelieving Jews. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So ears being uncircumcised, uncut, shows that they don't listen and obey. But ears being cut open on the slave indicates that he will listen and he will obey. And the fact that that happens at the doorway calls to mind the first Passover. Just like the Israelites were being given their new identity as belonging to the household of God, the slave is gaining a new identity as a permanent part of the master's household. It's an adoption. Passover and circumcision are connected. The doorposts of a house are like legs and the blood is applied to them. Think of Moses' son, Gershom. Moses and Zipporah are in the wilderness and God comes uh, and confronts Moses and his wife Zipporah quickly circumcised Gershom and she applied the blood of circumcision to his thighs, to his legs. And then we go on to see the Passover with the blood applied to the doorposts and lintel. Doorways in the Bible are associated with birth. So 
Passover, circumcision, being born into a family, it's all connected symbolically. And the slave here is becoming part of the family. He's moving from slavery to sonship of a sort. In fact, if there were no natural born sons in the family, this slave who has become a permanent part of the household, he could inherit the family's wealth. Uh, Back in Genesis 15, Abraham, while he's waiting for a son, as God had promised to him, he says, Eliezer, my servant, is my heir. That would be an example of that. Eliezer stood to inherit because he was a permanent slave in the household of Abraham. So just as the Israelites at Passover moved from being slaves to being sons, so this slave who chooses to stay in the master's house is moving from slavery to a kind of sonship, of belonging. And that leads us then to the last question, what's the purpose and goal of slavery? On a practical level, the slavery is designed to bring the man to maturity and responsibility, to give him a means of financial recovery, of getting on his feet again. But on a symbolic level, it's this move from slavery to freedom and rest. This is the beginning of the ordinances after the Ten Commandments. It's a fitting place to start because it reminds Israel of their own history. They were slaves in in Egypt. But they were purchased by a master, the very best master of all, God himself. And so now they have been adopted as sons, brought into the household of God on a permanent basis. What was the purchase price for our freedom? What price was paid to bring us into the household of God? The price was the very life of Jesus. He shed his blood to bring us our freedom. Peter writes about this. He says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we have been brought out of the slavery to sin and Satan and into the household of God. Paul picks up this language. Listen to the, just catch the logic here of what Paul says. This is in his letter to the Romans, and I'm just going to share with you a few of the things he says. In chapter 6, verse 17, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So they've moved from being in slavery to now being obedient from the heart. In other words, they are obeying because they love their master, God. Then Paul says a few verses later, now that you have been set free from sin and have become Slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So they have become slaves of God, and this is for their good. Do you see? It's growing them in maturity, sanctification, fruit in their lives. 
And then two chapters later, Paul says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. See, in Paul's mind, being taken from the slavery to sin and Satan and being bought now by this new master, God, becoming a slave of God and being adopted as a son is not two different things. It's the same thing. It's exactly what happens to this Hebrew slave who chooses to stay in the household because he loves the master. That's how Paul describes you and me. They've been freed from the slavery of sin. They've become slaves to God. But at the same time, they're not just slaves to God. They're adopted as sons. That's us. We are like the slave who chooses to stay in the master's household. He's purchased us. And it's in his household that we find true freedom. A Adoption as sons. The psalmist this morning has shared with us his experience of affliction. And he teaches us how to have faith and hope in God and his promises in the midst of that affliction. And we've also seen this morning, by looking at this one particular kind of affliction and how God's law provides a means of moving out of it, that God's law is for our good. Even the Old Testament laws about slavery, which to our modern ears might sound outdated and politically incorrect, they show us God's goodness to his people. They show his wisdom in providing for his people a means of recovery, a means of protection and provision. And they illustrate the great truth of what God has done for us in Christ by bringing us into his family. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for what we see this morning in your word. We thank you for, first of all, the psalmist walking us through these eight verses and, and we see his experience of affliction and the way that he deals with that and how he remains faithful and how he, he hopes in your word and your promises. That teaches us how we can respond in the middle of affliction. And we've also seen this illustration of, of this particular set of laws regarding slavery that show us how your law is for our good. That it, it, it's designed to move people from, from slavery to freedom. It's designed to move people from immaturity to maturity. And, and it points us to what you have done for us in Christ. That you have redeemed us with your precious blood. You have bought us. And so now we serve a new master. We have a master that, that is providing us a place of freedom, a master that we can absolutely love, a master who gives us a place to flourish, who gives us a place to grow into maturity, who gives us even the privilege of being part of the household, of being adopted as sons. And so we're thankful this morning for what you have done for us in Christ. And we pray that we would learn to live in response to that, that we would live lives of gratitude and that gratitude would show, would display in our lives by obedience to your law. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.